Good afternoon and welcome to the council, everyone. I'm your host, Charlie Pacello. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are, gosh, we are having some crazy weather here in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> we had a spring snowstorm that just about, uh, you know, covered my car with snow and I was wet and, uh, you know, trying to make it out here and uh, it just, you know, it was a nice surprise. And uh, I think a lot of us woke up and I don't know about you, but I'm ready for some warm weather here. Um, anyway, welcome to the council, everybody. We are broadcasting live here at KUHS-TV Radio Denver, the stream. We're broadcasting not only here in the beautiful city of Denver, Colorado, uh, the snowy place today, uh, but all across the nation and all around the world. Uh, our show here is being listened to by so many of you from um, so many different countries around this beautiful globe. And we just want to thank all of you who are tuning in. And uh, we have so many different genres and different uh, programs here at KUHS, uh, live DJ performances here in the studio and other great doctors and uh, talk shows here that really are here to help illuminate, to enlighten, to inspire, to give you a hope and uh, encouragement to keep moving forward. And our audience uh, is growing exponentially. And uh, we are being listened to by over 80 different countries. And our mission here is to bring quality programming that reflects not only the diversity of our staff, but to have honest, grounded, authentic conversations about the many issues that confront our society. We're a beacon of hope in a world where it's filled with a lot of fear and distrust and separation. We strive to bring our city and our nation and our world together by providing a platform where we celebrate our commonalities, our goodness, and our humanity. And the council here, we, uh, we just were, um, boy, I'm so excited to, to share this with you. Um, we were uh, featured in a local Italian magazine. It's the Colorado Italian Community Newspaper. It's called Andiamo. And we were featured in this month's, uh, this month's issue here at April 2021, and it was celebrating the uh, airwaves of Italian radio and uh, was called by one of their reporters to talk about the council and uh, how long we've been doing this. And we're featured here, and it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful article. It's really just, I couldn't be more excited and, and, and happy to be a part of it and to celebrate uh, you know, broadcasting with Italian pride and to all of our Italian uh, community members who tune in and watch. And, and so I would please encourage you to check it out. There's so many great things here. There's, uh, you know, constantly adding and remembering the, 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 the impact that the Italian community had here in Denver, Colorado. It is quite extraordinary. And they go back for over a century to the, you know, around the 1890s, 1880s, 1890s, when the Italians started to come here. And they've left a lasting legacy of, of goodness and, and community. And so, Please go ahead and check it out at Andiamo. I believe it's www.andiamocolorado.com. So check it out. We are in there. KUHS is in there. And we're just spreading, spreading the good news to as many people as we can. Uh, also, um, please check out my new website. It is www.coresoulhealing.com. That's coresoulhealing.com. 
Our model, what we do, um, this is uh, after years of studying and working and trying to understand how do we heal trauma, how do we recover, how do we move from a place of despair and hopelessness to uh, a place of sa safety and security and joy and possibility. And it was a long personal journey to get to where I am to be able to offer this to you all today. And I you know, encourage you, our goal is to heal trauma, to deepen the mind-body connection, and to restore the soul. That is, that is, our, that is what we stand on. That is, the, that is the way I have learned to be able to heal these deep traumatic wounds that, uh, that can imprison us for a long time if we don't know how to be able to navigate through those, those dark nights. So check it out, coresoulhealing.com. Uh, we're going to be having our first retreat once we get past COVID here, and we're going to get past COVID. Uh, we're going to need some time to, to regroup and to connect with one another. And we're going to be doing a retreat. Our first one is going to be in September, September 16th through the 19th. Check it out. It's going to fill up. It's going to sell out. So please uh, sign up as soon as you can because it's going to be an important opportunity for us to uh, reconnect to our warrior's heart. So check it out at CoreSoulHealing.com. Okay, folks, we've, uh, we've spent a lot of time here trying to um, bring to light a lot of the good things that people are doing around our community and uh, to highlight uh, those that are making a difference in, in, our, in our world, in our nation, and in our, in our city. And suicide is a very deep and personal and close uh, connection. I, uh, you know, dealing with uh, trauma, you, you deal with a lot of people sometimes that are close and they don't, they don't know how to escape from that pain. And uh, I was working for years ago, I was working in uh, the, uh, I was working down in Los Angeles at Skid Row. And I remember one of the guys that was working there, who's living there, had a really rough life. And uh, we were talking about suicide. And he said something that really stayed with me. And he says, you know, uh, so often people make a permanent decision for a temporary situation. And it's a permanent decision for a temporary situation. And I thought that was, here he was, he was, uh, you know, living on Skid Row here in downtown Los Angeles, one of the most difficult places uh, in our country that uh, if you've ever been there, it will break your heart. And it is it's just like, uh, how can this happen? How do we allow uh, people to be marginalized uh, like this and lost like this? But to him, to have this wisdom that was there and in, in where people had lost all sense of hope and connection to uh, anything good in their life. I mean, there, there was despair uh, magnified by 10, by 100. And here he had this treasure of wisdom there. that he, And I'm like, wow. That is so true because we can't see beyond that moment when we're in that kind of pain where we see that th that pain is never going to end. We, the only thing you want to do is to escape from it, to move beyond it, to, to, for it to go away. And, so the, and a lot of times because it hurts so bad, the only way you can think your way out of it is to, to make that permanent decision. And it is a temporary situation if we can get people to understand that that this is part, uh, we need to be able to move through it and there need to uh, know that there are people out there that care about you to help you so that you can learn whatever it is that you need to learn so that you can get the support and the community that can care for you and, and give you the hope that you need. 
And when I learned about uh, what our guest did today, uh, does today, uh, and how she works with our youth uh, here in Colorado, um, uh, youth suicide, suicide is the number one cause of death for our youth here in Colorado. And I was just like, I was astounding. It was astonishing to me. And what they do and, and the hope that they offer, the Second Wind Fund offers, uh, I wanted to bring them on the show as soon as I possibly could to inform you and all of you who listen to the show, because as we move out of the crisis that we're in, there's going to be a need for us to be able to know the resources that are available because these things are going to come to the surface. So let me introduce to you my guest. Her name is Kimberly Bow. She is the program director for the Second Wind Fund. In addition to being a licensed professional counselor, dance movement therapist, author, and volunteer. She received her master's in somatic counseling psychology with a concentration in dance movement therapy in 2011 from Naropa University. Since graduating, Kimberly has been fortunate to have worked and volunteered with and for several great organizations in roles such as co-director, community outreach specialist, and group leader working with multiple populations including veterans, youth, caregivers, elders, and people diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Kimberly is passionate about volunteering, giving back to the community, and building strong bonds within communities. Their website is www.thesecondwindfund.org. Again, that's thesecondwindfund.org. Welcome to the council, Kimberly. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) (laughs) I can't tell you, you know, just getting to know you and meet you and and just... uh, uh, and what you do. I'm so thrilled to have you on and to share the work that you do for our youth here in Colorado. But before we get to that, could you please just share a little bit more about your background and, and, and why, why did you cho- choose the, the profession that you decided to, to work in? You know, to be honest, when I was young, I really wanted to be a cardiac surgeon um, mm. because of an experience that happened in my life with my, with my grandfather. And um, some, you know, triple bypass. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I really want to help people. I want to make a difference. I want to be that doctor that comes out and says, your grandfather, your parent need it through surgery. And then as I went through school, I realized I still want that peace. And I want that relationship with people. I want that time to develop and have that connection. Mm-hmm. And that's how I came into counseling. I also had a background with dance. Uh, with dance. And so I was like, oh, look, dance movement therapy. I can combine my love of dance, my love of being with people, my passion for neuroscience and biology, and all of these into one unique, unique piece and be able to build relationships and help people. Um, my life's goal is one day to be able to volunteer and not have to be paid to work and just mm. provide my services for free. One day <laughs> I hope to, I, I really hope to make that goal happen, uh, hopefully before, you know, before too long. That's a goal. <laughs> uh, that's a great goal. I mean, it is. And I think anybody who has an empathic heart and who, and who does this kind of work and is a, is a healer at heart. I mean, that's it. We, we want to be able to do those kinds of works without having to really charge for those things and to be able to volunteer. That's beautiful. And could you share just a little bit more about what dance therapy is? I mean, what, how did you find that? What, and, and how does that help people 
um, when they're when they're struggling with some of the problems that you see in your work? So dance therapy is what we call a creative arts therapy. It's in the line of art therapy, music therapy, dance therapy, psychodrama, all these wonderful modalities that people can take advantage of. Dance therapy is basically the psychotherapeutic use of movement to promote healing. Mm. So it's based on the fact that the mind, the body, the spirit, they're all connected, right? Mm. You can't take you can't take it apart. Movement is a language is a language for us. Um, and like, right from the moment that we're born, even in utero, you move, we express, you can tell, like I'm very expressive with my hands too. Like, <laughs> I like to express, I like to use my body to show that, right? So yeah. dance therapy utilizes that connection, right? So working with someone who's got trauma, for example, this isn't my story. I had borrowed from one of my teachers um, from grad school, but I thought it was, it's a good example of what a dance therapy can do is my teacher was working with a client who had been attacked by somebody who was wearing a red sweater and working with some traditional forms of therapy wasn't working for her. You know, it doesn't do great therapy does great things for, but sometimes you just need different, different modalities, different people. And my teacher had noticed that she had this little tick in her shoulder for her shoulder. You know, like you can just kind of just lift up every little bit. And so what my teacher did was help her to sequence that out. And it found out that she wanted to punch mm-hmm. her attacker. Um, and once she punched her, once she sequenced out that punch, she was able to work on her healing a little in a different way mm-hmm. because her body had, had not been able to sequence out what it wanted to do. So mm-hmm. accessing the mind and through the body was a great, great, great tool for that person. And that's, kind of in a nutshell what dance therapy is it's using the body as a way to heal yeah and and when people have been traumatized a lot of times that trauma gets locked in the body uh we are we are prevented from acting and moving and having an agency to prevent whatever is going on and so we get locked up and we get frozen in that moment in that period of time And so the body didn't get an opportunity to push away or push back that person or to fight in that situation or to save our our fellow soldier or whatever it is. We didn't get an opportunity to do that. And so we end up having a tick. And so the body, moving that body in that way helps us to, to get back here and gives us an opportunity to have the agency to to move through that in a way we didn't get to when that trauma happened. Yeah, there's lots of great work to back that up. Now you got the like the gut the gut brain. You got the work of Candice have the work of Candace Pert and the po- uh, Porges polyvagal theory mm-hmm. that really started to back up what we what the body and a lot of us knew innately, right? That mm-hmm. it's, that there's healing within us. Yep. Well, and, I, and I've spent a lot of time doing drama therapy, drama healing, because that was one of the things that because it was an, an opportunity to be able to connect to a story that ne- wasn't necessarily my story, but I could put myself in, an, in somebody else's mm-hmm. story and I could be able to connect to the, all those emotions and feelings. And I was lifting it up onto the stage in a way that enabled me to take my suffering and bring it up to another level, to a, a level that allowed for that communal understanding of we how we heal together and so by sharing that in meaningful ways we we end up healing our stories and dance and movement is so critical to that as you know i would never disagree right like, <laughs> i mean and what you said too i think you also hit on the the, the topic of being witnessed mm-hmm. and who we are right that's also such a huge piece to it as well it is uh, being seen. You know, a lot of the times in those moments, you know, when, when trauma 
is pre-verbal and so it happens when we're no we don't really necessarily have the language or to be able to articulate what actually happened to us and then there was no witness and we want we feel like we're not being seen and then there's shame connected to that and then there's this sense of uh, of not being worthy i mean there's all kinds of things that get connected to it and so dance and movement and drama therapy and the expressive arts therapies allows us to break free from that. It's this moving movement towards freedom and agency. And I just, I, I love it. I, I mean, we could have a whole show on that. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but our show today is talking about a very, very important issue. And it is centered on suicide prevention and particularly our youth. And, uh, you know, recently, I think it was last week, the, the CDC came out with the number of deaths from that occurred last year. And it was an increase uh, to like 3.3 million. The, the significant increase came from COVID. Um, COVID was number three uh, on the list behind uh, disease and cancer. And suicide actually dropped to 11th. And, and even though suicide fell during the pandemic, it, it, that seems very counterintuitive. Uh, Kimberly, why do you think that there was a decline in suicide? So this is a, such an interesting question, and it's the question I think is kind of being debated and talked about within within the community because it is the second year that the CDC has showed a decline in suicide. Mm -hmm. What's so interesting is that people aren't sure if it's actually masking something. If it's actually there's something else going on underneath there. So, for example, in the past. Like after World War II, some studies have shown that suicide tend to decline after a tragedy, like after a natural disaster or something to that effect. Um, but then also with some of the CDC data as well, we're also not sure what factors played into that, right? Some of the, the, the you know, everyone thinks at home maybe took away some of the isolation, being, you know, being with somebody if you're if you were fortunate enough to be with somebody. Um, so you had, you had, so you had a protective factor in decreasing the social isolation, so, social Ah, excuse me. De <laughs> decreasing the isolation. <laughs> oh, decreasing isolation. Oh my gosh, isolation and increasing that social that social connectedness. There we go. Finally got that sentence out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it gets very difficult. Sometimes we have those words that come to us, and our and our thoughts are trying to catch up with our words, or our words are trying to catch up with our thoughts, which is. So that's great. I do it all the time, Kimberly. So, <laughs> you know, I'm working on the fact that I don't have to be perfect and it's okay to make mistakes because we're human. So that's right. there's a great example of that practice right there. <laughs> <laughs> and then being able to drill down with that data, right? Because what about some of the different populations? What about people who identify as Hispanic and Latino or people who identify as Black, African-American? What's going on there? So there's there's still some pieces that need to be put into place. So I'll be curious to see what we learn in the next in the next couple months and years as some of the data continues to come out and as people continually push to learn more mm -hmm. and really advocate for as well. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think it's too early to tell. You know, I th plus during crises uh, we tend to. Uh, I, I don't know. We, you know, you 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 start to form these close knit bonds with people that you're living with, and you know everybody's together. And so there's an effort to to get through and to survive and uh, whatever that crisis may be. And then it's when the crisis passes that all of a sudden all those things that we had suppressed, all of those emotions, those feelings, maybe we had you know other things that we haven't been dealing with or hadn't been. All of a sudden that comes to the surface. 
and those feelings of inadequacy and shame and all those things. So I think it's really important that we're, we're not jumping the gun yet and that there are certain populations we need to be concerned about um, in this second year of the pandemic. Are there, are there certain populations we need to be concerned about? And, and what, Kimberly, are some of the signs that concern you that we need to be aware of so that we don't fall into complacency about this? So I think some of the populations that are on my radar and probably a, a few, multiple other people's radars are our frontline healthcare workers. They're in it day in, day out. They see it. They're talk about compassion fatigue as well, just really in it, you know, because they care for people and are wanting to give their best. Um, folks who've endured financial hardships, housing instabilities, um, as well as the populations that I mentioned earlier are, you know, LGBT populations as well. Some of those populations are marginalized and there's, they have greater risk factors um, because of societal, like the culture surrounding them. Those are the folks that I think um, are ones that I would be paying attention to. And in terms of um, being you know, aware and staying up, is making sure you know those risk factors and warning signs, right? Making sure that you know what, I mean, that you're able to identify those. And if not, being able to ask somebody about it. Um, like make sure you know that a risk factor might be access to lethal means protect potentially. Um, exposure to someone else's suicide. Um, along those lines, um, Eric, American Associ uh, AFST, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, has a great list of what those warning signs and uh, factors are. So I would definitely recommend checking out checking out all, what all those are mm -hmm. and making sure that you just know what they are. Um, and realize that you can make a difference. Mm -hmm. That I mean, one individual connecting with another goes a long way. Yeah, it makes it such a big difference. And it's a lot of times. I mean, I I, I can't. I have no data to support this. Uh, but I think just letting that someone, just one person, showing that they care, can make to me like a huge difference uh, in in whether or not somebody is. You know, just just thinking about suicide and whether someone thinks it takes it to the next, you know, to that permanent decision that I was talking about. Um, and it's just being able to know what those signs are, to be able to identify it, to, to, to be able to catch it before it, it, it precipitates into something that you can't reverse from. Kimberly, you've worked with this population for some time, and I want to get into the work that you do here. But before we talk about uh, the Second Wind Fund, we wanna, uh, how, can, how can we support our youth when they're surrounded by all these tragedies right now? And we've got a lot of tragedy. We've got uh, the COVID pandemic and the immense loss of life that we have experienced culturally and societally because of it. The social crises that continue to pop up that are erupting everywhere. The recent tragedies in Boulder and Atlanta, I mean, the, the, the senseless mass shootings, the horror. Uh, and these, these young kids are trying to process it in an environment that, where they may be carrying huge burdens of grief and sadness and fear and rage and hopelessness, and they may not know what to do with it. How can we help them? I think the first step was right there was acknowledging that that's there, um, you know, knowing that there is a lot of grief and pain and, and anger. And then I think the second step is to give give them space to talk about it. What's going on? Go, what's going on for them inside? I mean, where every emotion is welcome, like where that rage is, like where that anger, where that 
that it's honored and validated for, the, for those for those feelings and then to be able to talk about talk about it with them in an age-appropriate way right mm-hmm. so part of what makes things difficult for kids is they don't know or they don't understand so give them something to to, to, to grapple with right but age, like again age appropriately mm-hmm. um so that way they can that they can ask questions and you can work with them on it right because they need the support we're we as caring adults want to be there for them. And this is one way we can, by being that good support, that listening ear, that I'm here for you. Um, the, the traumatic, the National Traumatic um, Child Stress Foundation Network has great resources for parents about, you know, how to work, how to listen, about how to listen and work with some of these topics as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I would say too is find out what would be helpful for them. Ask, like, hey, what would be helpful for you? Would it be helpful if we walked and talked? Would it be helpful if we got you in to see some, a counselor? Would it be helpful? What is that for them? Mm-hmm. Um, really giving them that 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 voice and empowering them to advocate for themselves too in the midst of all this. I think that's, you know, and it's really helping to, and I just want to move, uh, add to it. It's helping to build these bonds of trust with them. And knowing that every child is going to be different and, and tuning in to what it is right for them and being able to help them to process it. And, you know, and it's, a lot of it has to do with the sense of feeling safe. And when, when, the, when the whole community is not feeling safe or when you're, when you're not feeling safe, that magnifies for a child and a youth uh, who's going through all these changes uh, and is trying to find their place in the world. And Kimberly, I, I think it's so important to establish trust. Is it? You've worked with this population for a while. How important is it to establish trust with our youth as a counselor? And is this a vital, critical ingredient in helping them to, to be able to open up to whatever it is that may be troubling them? Yes. If I could shout this from if I could shout this from the treetops, I would because trust is such a huge, huge thing. I think one of the ingredients in a therapeutic relationship is building that relationship, that that trust, that mutual that respect. Um, so that way, the youth feels comfortable to share some of those things. Right? They need to know that if if I had a youth in sitting in front of me, they need to know that no matter what they say, I'm able to hold that hold that space for them. And say, you know what? Yep, I'm here for you. Let's go. Turn the darkest of dark to the lightest of light in both. And I think that's the other thing that gets forgotten too is that. Sometimes people forget how to hold the, even the lightest of the light, the positive thing. Um, so to be able to go, to be able to be, be with them in that spectrum and say, yep, again, once again, I am with you. Let's go. Or I, I, will, I will stand with you in this, in this space. So being able to build that rapport and build that trust is such an important thing. Because uh, another reason is because of the fact that let's say that there is a chance where there is a disconnect, right? Mm-hmm. Therapists aren't perfect. Um, we may miss. We may miss it. It, it happens. Mm-hmm. It's all in that repair, right? If you have a trust and you have that that solid relationship, you can repair it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, again, that may not work. And so we want that trust and we want that stability and that safety within that relationship. It's so critical, uh, and I'm so glad that you uh, wanted to shout this from the roof <laughs> and let everybody know about it because it is. I mean, it is. It is the. Uh, the, the critical element. It is something that uh, we, we, we can have all of the tools, we can have all of the information, we can have all of the resources, but if we can't establish trust with the people that we're working with, none of that, in my opinion, based on you know, my, my life coaching work, 
you, you, you can only take them so far, uh, really, uh, because why are they going to trust you with their, their secrets? How, how are they going to be able to let you know what's really good? their demons that's going on inside of them? Kimberly, when uh, I looked at your website and I went on it and, th and, uh, and it's, there's so many resources that are right there. But on the, your website states that suicide, and this is a quote, suicide is the leading cause of death for youth in Colorado, end quote. And when I saw that, and it was italicized, it just really made me really, really sad. Um, I'm like, wow. And, and I, don't think a lot of, I don't think a lot of people here in Colorado know that. And they need to. And, uh, but I just wanted to ask you, why, why is this true? Why is this happening here? You know, to be honest, I wish that what you said wasn't true, that suicide wasn't a leading cause of death in the state of Colorado. I, I, I more than anything wish that it was non-existent. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure why that's the case. What I do have a hypothesis about is that I think it gives us a chance as a community to come around our young people and do something for them. Mm. I think at the core, we all fundamentally want to help our communities, each other, that, that that's, that's an innate piece of us. And so this gives us that opportunity to do that and say, you know, what can we do for these youth? Can we create different programs for them? Can we come alongside them? Can we be a trusted adult? So it gives us these different opportunities to change that, um, which is what, I think we all want to do. We want to. We want. We know that every life is precious. Um, from a four-year-old to a ninety-nine-year-old, every life is precious, and every life has something to give. And we want to see that come to fruition in the world. So, I think it gives us that opportunity to say, you know what? Let's do something. Let's change this statistic and say, guess what? Colorado, we're coming. We're changing this. Yeah. What is, what is some of the age range that you deal with at, at the um, for the youth suicide prevent, how youngest to oldest? What's the what's the age range that you? Just have? So our organization specifically nineteen and under. Mm -hmm. um, the average age of referral that we see to our to our nonprofit our agency is twelve to thirteen, and that's been pretty consistent throughout throughout wow. the, the few years. So that middle school age range. The youngest we've ever seen though is a four year old. Um, so this is like this is to me this is baby baby a four-year-old contemplating um, suicide and wow. the behaviors of a four-year-old aren't necessarily what it is for like a 12 or 13 year old where you might be having somebody express suicide ideations for like four-year-olds have more behaviors right yeah. like banging their head against the wall you know running out into the middle of the street they're asking for help just in the language that they, that, that they know wow 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 um are we responsible? Uh, and when I hear those, uh, that uh, I can't imagine. You know, I, I think of uh, the innocence of children and uh, the beauty of it. I mean, when you're a kid, you you're supposed to uh, explore life and and be and, and let the wonder of life, the innocence of life, the awe, the, you know, to to take over and captivate and <laughs> the curiosity. The last thing a child should, in my feelings is to ever even contemplate suicide and is it a breakdown in in uh in the way our society is today and and who's responsible whose responsibility is suicide prevention 
this question, again, I will go to street jobs. It's everybody's job for suicide prevention, right? Mm -hmm. It's person on the street, it's family, it's, it's everybody. We all have a role to play in suicide prevention. It's, you know, there's coalitions that do this work. There's the, even the state of Colorado has the Office of Suicide Prevention. Colorado is the part of the, the Colorado National Collaborative that's basically becoming the role model for the state, what we can do, I mean, the country for what we can do differently. But it takes every individual in this in this fight to, to save a life. Um, from, again, person walking down the street to the people involved in the coalition. It is everybody. Everybody, everybody, everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. And you and you have a lot of people who are who are supporting the organization and seeing the value that you're doing. And I, uh, from the, the Broncos to other groups, I've seen that they're you know yeah. they're, they're they understand the value and they, and it is they're taking the the, the civic responsibility of de- of doing something about it, not just talking about it, doing something. And I think it's important to discuss, too, um, the causes. You know, what are some of the causes of suicide in our youth? How can, you know, how does a four-year-old suddenly want to commit suicide or a 12- or 13-year-old? What are, what are some of these causes that parents and loved ones should know about? You know, I, this is the question that I wish I had the, the answer to be like, yep, it's this. Yeah. Suicide is... <laughs> I think we all did. I think we all would. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> that's the, yeah. That's the, yeah, if we had that answer, we'd be great. You know, it's such a complex issue. It's mm-hmm. so multifaceted, right? So it's it, it can be a combination of things. It could be school problems. It could be family relationships. It could be bullying. It could be so much different different things kind of coalescing into to cause somebody to even think about that. Um, and that's why there's so many ways for us to come back and do something different mm-hmm. to help support kids mm-hmm. uh, because we can we can target so many different things and so there's there's room for all of us again I'm going to come back whose responsibility is suicide prevention it's all of our <laughs> that's it's right. all of ours <laughs> is to, is to you know if, you know from from schools to organizations to, to really just finding ways to build problem solving skills and again show somebody that they're cared and they're loved yeah I think that's uh, one of the biggest things is is if feeling safe and feeling loved. I see when I teach uh, parents, I teach a class for parents who are going through divorce to set up parenting plans for their children. And one of the things that I tell what children want to feel if, if, by their parents by, is to feel, they want to feel safe and they want to feel loved by both mom and dad. That's what they want to feel at their core. And, um, and when you don't feel safe or we don't feel those, uh, those emotions, uh, you, it can lead to you know, a lot of trouble and problems. And suicide is, 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 is complex in the, in the sense that uh, it's, it's usually very uh, – it's based on an individual's own ex- personal experiences. And the way I say this, why I say this is because, you know, about 10 years ago, I was suicidal. I had suicidal ideation. I was in a lot, a lot of pain. And uh, it, I, I just – it was the most excruciating pain I'd ever been in, and I wanted it to end. I wanted it I, – I didn't know what else to do. I was uh, – uh, I couldn't get the help that I needed. Uh, it's a long story. And uh, the only way that I could seem to get out of this pain was, was, that was suicide. Uh, and I was very depressed. But – as I ended up getting help, unfortunately, those people came into my life that uh, were those critical, you know, lifelines. Uh, that they threw down that uh, uh, that life raft uh, <laughs> that uh, to, to, to rescue me, or for me to help me rescue myself. 
But one of the, the root causes for me uh, was mostly guilt and shame. It wasn't necessarily depression, although that was a symptom of my suicide. It was a huge, it was a dominant system, symptom, which led, then led to a lot of self-harming behaviors and withdrawal. And it was, it was a vicious cycle. Could you describe this more clearly, this progression of shame to suicidality in our youth that parents and loved ones may not be aware of? You know, so I am a big believer in Brene Brown's work yeah. um, and her work on, <laughs> yeah, we have, Brene Brown does some great stuff with shame. Yeah. Um, and so people who have not indulged in Brene Brown's work, I hear some great TED Talks. I highly recommend you go look at Brene Brown's work. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, when she talks about shame, she talks about it as being basically flawed and therefore unworthy of love, mm -hmm. right? And that based on what we just talked about, right? That we have this, we have this need to feel safe and loved in this world, mm -hmm. right? So that, that that takes us that takes us away, right? And fundamentally, humans are social creatures. We develop and grow in relationship with each other, mm -hmm. like mom, dad, extended family, and community, right? It takes a village to raise a kiddo because we grow and thrive in 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 that. And so to feel that disconnected, that removed and not worthy of, of, of being here, of being loved, like, that's an excruciating, excruciating place, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, depending on the age of the age of age of the kiddo, right? You know, the four-year-old, right? They're going to, again, show, show in, in show behaviors versus maybe a 19-year-old who might be able to start to say something or start to recognize changing changes. So it's, it's a, such a, it's a, I would say it's a developmentally different, and I think it's also individualistic, right, in terms of, of how that, that progression works. But I think it's worth also checking in. Like, talk to your, talk to your kids. Have a, or if your kids, you know, have a trusted adult, whoever, but check in with you and say, you know what, I, I noticed something, something seems a little bit off. You're, you're, you're isolating a little bit more. You're not talking to your friends. So paying attention so that way you know you're clued in, like, mm, there's something and that's hope, right? Listening to your gut, you know, generally, if your gut's saying, eh, there's something off here, mm -hmm. there probably is something off, right? And again, that bid for connection, right? If, if shame is that unworthy of love, and you come in with something different and saying, you know what? Hey, guess what? I'm coming in with love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're combating that right then and there in that moment. Well, and Brene Brown says, you know, empathy uh, trumps uh, oh, yeah. shame. It just it overcomes it. It, it you can it, it, shame cannot survive or cannot uh, uh, empathy, compassion, love, kindness. It just it can't it, it can't survive that, which is the antidote <laughs> to to that shame. And but we have to pay attention. We can't just put blinders on and pretend it's going to go away. If our our child or if a child we know is in trouble, we can't just think that it's not. You know, we've got to. We got to know what the signs are, and, and we have to be able to be willing to address those things as they come up. And I think it's really important for parents to know what they can do. And if there was one thing, what do you, what, what do you think is the most important thing, Kimberly, that a parent or a loved one can do if they suspect? that their teenager or child might be considering suicide. Do they so bring the issue up or, you know, what can they do? Oh, yeah. Bring it up, right? Yeah. There's this huge myth out there. And so I'm, 
there is research to back up that this is a myth, that bringing up the topic of suicide puts the idea in somebody's head. It is so not true. <laughs> you take away one thing from what I said, take this away. Now, that is a myth. You need to bring it up with your child directly. You know, are you thinking about suicide? Are you thinking about hurting yourself? Ask it. You know, that's actually a great relief to people to know that somebody is, again, seeing them and seeing they're in pain and asking them to care. You know, if, if they're not, they're going to say no, which is fine. But if they say yes, you've opened a door, you've opened a conversation. And as we were just talking about empathy, you know, bringing in, bringing in empathy and compassion and then listening, right? With, you know, giving some validation to what's going on for them. Um, I think Renee does a good job of, of talking about the difference between compassion and like silver lining or like sympathy, like the silver lining in this video, you know, the, she's, but this, you'll have to watch the video, but this, this little animal character draws a silver lining around a, a bubble, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and instead of doing that, sitting there with them, so you know what, going to that place in yourself of saying, you know, yeah, I know pain. Mm-hmm. It may not be your pain, acknowledging that it's different, but I know pain and I'm going to be in there with you instead of saying, yeah. That instead of saying it's just a phase, you're going to get through it, right? That's going to shut somebody down, open them up, mm-hmm. give them that permission to say, Yes, I'm in pain, help me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're struggling with what to do, you know, use Colorado Crisis Services. It's a wonderful service, you know, 1 8255 talk. They're going to give you some good ideas um, about ways to help your kiddo too if you're stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, after having that conversation. Well, and of course, they're going to go to your website uh, here yeah. at the Second Wind Fund. Uh, absolutely, the services that you have. And we're going to talk about that here. But first of all, you know, I think, which is so interesting because we have this incredible technology that enables us to connect and you would think that it would draw us closer and we would be, you know, more uh, understanding and being able to link up with people from all different parts of the world that it would somehow have had a more positive impact. And I think that initially when they designed these technologies, that was its intention. But some of these things have had a deleterious impact on our children's minds and, and, and our teenagers and the things that I, I I'm and I'm curious um, how much of an impact has modern technology and social media things like Facebook and Instagram and Snapchats and the iPhones and all these things uh, how much of it has had an impact on the increase in suicide in our youth is there a correlation and if so, what is the best thing that parents and loved ones can do about it? So I love that you use correlation instead of causation, right? Because correlation implies a connection versus a cause. And that's, again, the tricky piece with suicide being multifaceted. And the fact that social media and technology, while it has increased, you know, problematic stuff with cyberbullying and things like that, yeah. there is that other side, which you kind of alluded to when, the, when you were asking the question, is that, it can sort of protective factor for some kiddos, right? Giving them some place to connect. So it's one of those where it's like, how 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 do we? I don't want to use the word label, but how do we um, how do we measure measure that? Because for one kiddo, it's it, it 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 is it's a factor, and there are studies to show that, and there are also studies to show that yes, this is a good thing. Have this kiddo having Facebook and having access to you know Instagram or or Snapchat. It's actually been great for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's in the role of parents or caregivers, it's monitoring that social media. What's the what's exactly. co- what's going on with you? What's going on with the kid, your kiddo's Facebook account, Snapchat? 
what, how are they coming away from that? Are they so stressed over, oh my gosh, I'm not getting 50 likes on this picture? <laughs> yeah. like, or is it like, oh, you know what? I found a, like a true friend, like a, a true somebody who's, who's there to support me. Yeah. So it's, it's engaging it's, as a parent with, with that, you know, I, the best thing I can kind of describe it is that social media, you and your kiddo are all in a relationship, right? It's a relationship with social media. Yeah, I like that. That's great. Yes, it's the relationship you have with it. It can be good or bad, and it depends upon what you know how you how what you put into it. What's your role in relationship? You know what and where the boundaries are and how you set those boundaries. So important. I love that. I think that's exactly it. Uh, because it can. It can be both. I mean, you, see, you hear stories about some of these kids that, uh, you know, they're, they're cyberbullying and, they, and that causes, uh, you know, them to, to fall into that suicidal ideation place. Or, and then on the reverse, it is that sense of, I, look at all these cool friends I have, you know, and, and, and this is my friend Johnny or Susie or whoever. They live here. And that has that. So it's, I think it's parents being, you've got to be involved with your children's lives. I mean, that's, that's really what it, be involved with them, be concerned, know who your children are talking to, know what they're doing, stay, if they're veering off into any territory like dark web territories or things that are not very good, you've got you to put a stop to it. And I think it's just setting those healthy boundaries. And what's so interesting is, you know, adolescence is the time where you're pushing, right? So you yeah. to develop yourself as, as a person. At the same time, that's when your, your kids need you the most. Mm. That's when you really have to lean into it. And so, you know what? I know you're pushing away, and that's part of your job is to grow and develop and become your own person. And guess what? I'm still here for you, yeah. right? That, that safety thing never goes away. Oh, and you thank your parents so much afterwards when they do that. You don't <laughs> think of when you're that age. You're like, oh, gosh, they're always in my – all this stuff. But when you get older and you're, you know, in your 30s, uh, you're like, I'm so glad that they did what they did. So what does, why are the second wind funds? Let's talk about the second wind here the, uh, and really get people to understand the work that you do there. And, and why are they, the, the second wind fund services needed and important for our community? So... Second wind fund fills a gap in the system, right? So you know, there's there's Medicaid, there's health ins there's health insurance, things like that. But there's this there's this there's this spot where people can't still can't afford therapy, and that's the gap that we're filling. Mm -hmm. To be honest, you know, I think most nonprofit organizations wish they didn't exist, mm -hmm. right? Because then things would be working, and we wouldn't be needed. I would love to be out of a job. I right? get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Put me out of a job. Put me <laughs> out of a job. Let me. That's exactly. I'll go. Yeah. I'll go make wine, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll go find a different career, right? Um, right. But yes, put me out of a job. Like, that's that's what Psychoinfund is. It fills this gap. So people have access. Um, youth have access to mental health counseling um, where they when they wouldn't have access before. Because, I mean, there's barriers, right? Physical health. We take great care of our physical health for the mm. most part. Like, that's that's really highlighted. But the mental health side of it, it, it kind of gets... Like, we don't want to. We need to bring that back out here and say, okay, this is just as important, and we need to be able to figure out how to make it affordable for people. Yeah. So that way, we can access it and make it not so unattainable because it is just as important. Like, and, you know, we, we take care of our health with a physical exam. Mm -hmm. Why not go to you know a therapist or a counselor for for a mental health exam every year? Make sure that you're you're taking care of yourself. 
Exactly. You know, and we, we, we forget that, yeah, when a physical ailment happens, we, get, we know what to do. But there's, you know, there's four parts of us. There's the, the, the emotional part, the spiritual part, the, uh, you know, mental part, and then the physical part. Three of, our, three of our experiences in life are internal, not just the external. So why wouldn't we take care of that just as much as we take care of the outside? And I think the other interesting thing, too, that I've noticed, and I have no research to back up what I'm about to say, it's just my own observation, is when we have a friend who's in who's in pain or suffering, we want to go there. Our instinct is what? To go help that person? Mm-hmm. Why don't we do that for ourselves? Yeah. Right? Why don't we get that, turn that same care for ourselves and say, I'm worth that, too. So how does the Second Wind Funds program work? So Second Wind Fund covers 30 counties across the state of Colorado. We have what we call qualified referral sources, QRSs, in case I accidentally slipped into acronyms. I'm going to tell you what that means. What that means. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> I, don't be, sh- no, what? <laughs> I try hard not to, but every once in a while, it just yeah. happens. Um, who are basically people who are trained for to assess for suicide. So about 90% of our referrals come from schools because we've got school counselors, social workers, psychs who can assess for that. And then we also work with the juvenile diversions programs, pediatricians, other places where you've got people who are trained to assess for suicide. They can refer somebody to Second Wind Fund and say, we've got a kiddo who is under 19 at risk for suicide, who has either no insurance or who's underinsured. And underinsured could be anything from um, co-pays too high, deductibles too high, whatever that might look like, that there's a financial barrier there. Um, They fill out an online referral form. We look it over and say, yes, this kiddo is a good fit and email back the QRS, the the paperwork, and the list of therapists that are based on the needs of the kiddo, right? So if kiddo has suicidal ideation is also working with substance abuse issues, we're gonna pair kiddo with therapists who are um, also work with substance abuse issues and are in that student's location. We're not just gonna send back a generic list. Nope, this is specifically tailored to this this kiddo. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the kiddo's family gets to choose which therapist they want to see. We talked about trust in the early in the earlier on this conversation. Here's where it comes back into play. We need to have a good relationship. So that's why we're not going to choose for. We want the family to choose who they feel like is the best fit for them. And then the kiddo gets to work with that therapist for up to 12 sessions of therapy paid for by us. The family sees no bills whatsoever. They don't have to deal with the financial side of it. That all is handled by us. Um, and we do screen and um, that our counselors so that families know that they're working with therapists who um, are experienced with working with kiddos at risk for suicide. And I do switch back and forth between counselor and therapist, but they're pretty much the same thing. It's just two different words for the same thing, just to clarify. <laughs> no, that, that's uh, that, that's important. But uh, the fact that they, uh, you know, that you're you're helping those that are. That, that, that you just can't afford it and that need it. And there's actually the ones that really probably need it the most is the ones that, 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 that can't afford those things. And, to, and so if the parents not having to worry about that is such a huge, huge thing. And they can actually give their kids the help that they need. You know, a lot of times I think, uh, you know, parents sometimes or, or loved ones feel like they can't, they don't, they, there's nothing out there that can help them. And they want to help their child, but they feel helpless to that. And this yeah. is such a lifeline. Uh, that I think so many parents would are, would be grateful to hear and are, are, that are listening right now that are, are, are so grateful to learn about you and your work. Now, what if a student or a family is resistant to counseling? How do you, how do you help them overcome that resistance? So I have a lot of QRSs, so qualified referral sources, who do submit their referral 
um, and say here, they offer it to the family and say, here, this is an option for you. Mm-hmm. The other thing too, is that, you know, we can't actually force anyone to go through, you know, follow through with counseling, but we can suggest other things, other resources that they might be able, might be able to utilize, right? So, and depending on the county where the kiddos looked at, they can potentially say, you know, have you thought of looking over here for right now as a resource to, to kind of support you in the interim? Um, and then know that that referral is still there. So that's kind of the cool thing about our referrals. If the, if the quality referral, referral source puts that referral in and the kiddos like at four, and doesn't come back and use it until they're 16, it's still good. It doesn't expire until the kiddo turns 20. So it's still there for them and it will always be there for them as that, as that, as that, as that resource. Um, but we can definitely come up with other ideas for supporting supporting families too, because you know, if some people have other have other needs that maybe we need to focus, they need to be focused on first. Mm-hmm. But it's still there for them. So great, so fantastic, and and. I know certainly when we're beginning any kind of something new or a child is engaged with uh, something that they don't want to do, but they, they have to do it. They, they engage in a lot of negative self-talk. This isn't working. This isn't that. I, you know, I don't want to do this. And so it's, it's almost that they're sabotaging themselves from the help that they need. What can we do? How can we handle the negative self-talk uh, in kids? Not just for this, yeah. but also for other things as well. And I, I think for me too, so I want to speak from a place of I, because I'm still personally also, you know, still have some negative self-talk that I'm still working with too. Yeah, me, so I think, me too. I mean, <laughs> me so too. I think yeah. if we can work with our youth too, right, to help them <laughs> learn something different so they're not, it's a great thing. It's yeah, a great thing. It's true. Um, I also kind of laugh at this question because we just filmed something for the Denver Broncos about negative self-talk, um, about what that looks like and how to recognize it. Mm-hmm identifying it again is the first step, right? So mm-hmm. identifying that self-talk, um, a lot of it happens internally, but sometimes you can also catch it externally too, right? So, you know, you can hear it, I suck at everything. So like they're magnifying mm-hmm. it or um, polarizing it. Like if I can't do it this way, then it's not happening at all. So you've got that kind of that, that polarizing piece of, of it. So learning to recognize what negative self-talk is mm-hmm. and then gently helping to reframe it. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a way to reframe this. Like, you know, instead of saying, I look, I suck, I can't do this. Well, let's check in. Is that actually true? Let's let's do a let's do a litmus test to this. You know, well, let's see, you've done this in the past. You've done this in the past. So let's see, is that really true? So check that, check it, check in on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then helping them to reframe it, right? So you don't suck as a person. No. Maybe you struggle with doing this math problem. I'm just picking a simple example, but maybe, so I need to work on my math skills Mm -hmm. and I know I have the skills to do it, Mm -hmm. right? So figuring out how to reframe it for them so that way they're practicing good, healthy habits right from the get-go. Absolutely. And and turning that into some kind of motivation, you know, instead of seeing it as an insurmountable obstacle that we can't overcome and that is a negative mark on who I am, I'm using this as as a motivation to overcome that and whatever things that I can do and, and, and to connect to the people who can help me to overcome that so that obstacle gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And before you know it, I've overcome that. And wow, the character and the sense of self-accomplishment and esteem that is built to help somebody build their self-esteem. And I think it's so great, you know, that you, you're doing this with the, with the Broncos and others to help them to overcome that negative self-talk. 
And I think what often gets overlooked is the importance of understanding the triggers that make us feel good about life. You know, now we always talk about the triggers that make us feel terrible and this and that and sad. And, all, and we tend to focus too much on the negatives. How important do you think it is for us to acknowledge the triggers that make us feel good? It's so important, right? Like that's 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 kind of what I was talking about earlier, right? The light, like the, the light is the light, right? Sometimes we have a hard time holding that too, but we need to remember what makes us happy, right? Because if we're working with a kiddo, like, you know, this school all the time or work, go, go, like go, go, go. Wait, where's play? Where's where's that where's that 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 piece that gives you joy? You know, learning that skill as at an early age also helps us as an adult, right? Translates into self care. <laughs> yeah. And self yeah, self care as a kid. Right. What makes us happy? So that way when we need a break or when it gets stressed, before we even like even I think about a kiddo getting dysregulated, there's something we could have done way back here to help this kiddo get regulated and maybe that's helping them find that joy before yeah. so they're coming back down and can take on more because they've already had they've already deregulated like not deregulated, they de escalate already de escalated themselves further down. Yeah. Um, well, yes, know your happiness triggers, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, and then it helps us to regulate ourselves. You know, and, and a lot of the times it is getting back into regulation, that sense of mastering your, your emotional and physical arousals so that you can, you know, take control and take charge of your life. And, and when things get flustered and you get life, then what happens to all of us, knowing how to get yourself back into harmony and balance with yourself. Mm -hmm. What else? And we're coming close to the to the end here. It's, it goes by so fast. Um, oh, yeah, we are. <laughs> I, I want to make sure we uh, we we learn more than what the you, you focus on the the second wind fund focuses on 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 suicide prevention in youth. What other ways do you, does the second wind fund contribute uh, to our local community here? So I make it a priority to have a very strong community focus. Um, we do advocacy work. We get involved in the coalitions within the local communities. Mm -hmm. um, so even, you know, I, I'm, we're based in Denver, but I'm involved in the coalition all the way in the four corners because I care and Second Wind Fund cares about the community. Mm -hmm. um, so we're finding ways to do that and advocate for, for the youth voice too at the state level. We joined the work, the work group for the Suicide Prevention um, Commission as well. So doing lots of things to really, really make sure that we have a voice at the table on that we are advocating for those for, for youth across the state. So beautiful. And what about uh, um, honoring and uh, integrating equity? How is the Second Wind Fund uh, doing that uh, so that we, we, we embrace uh, everybody? So I think it starts too with doing our own work, mm -hmm. doing and understanding white privilege, um, the systems of oppression. So we're doing our work first and foremost. And also as a program department, really working to make sure that we have providers who represent the demographics and the kiddos that we see. Yeah. So if a kiddo wants to see someone who identifies as black African-American like them, that we can be able to work on that and make sure that we are providing the kiddo with that languaging, making sure that, the, you know, Spanish is the language that they want to work with their provider in, that we can provide that. Um, so really working from that e equity perspective um, so that all these are getting served. Fantastic. That is beautiful, Kimberly. That's so great. So great. How can people get in touch with you? Um, and do you have any programs, webinars, classes coming up that uh, you would like to let people know about? So definitely um, visit our website, thesecondwindfund.org. Um, you're more than welcome to reach out to me at pro uh, the web, the email address is program at thesecondwindfund.org. 
program at best that could win fund.org. I'm happy to answer any questions I can for you. Um, in terms of things that like if things have got coming up, I would say the thing we just filmed with the Broncos is a fantastic opportunity for teens. Um, it is uh, the the um, the Broncos Empowerment Summit for female identifying youth who are engaged in sports. With that said, I think the pre-recorded videos could work for all teens, mm -hmm. um, and there's four of them, releasing every Wednesday in May for Mental Health Awareness Month, uh, which I think are great, so take, to check check those out. Um, and then in Pueblo, Frame Pueblo, we're streaming on, I believe, Channel 7, um, May 4th, the Youth um, Mental Health and Wellness webinar um, put on by AT&T. Mm. We're taking part in that and talking a little bit from that perspective as well. So that's the two things I can think of off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, um, this has been fantastic. This is really, I just really am uh, impressed and grateful for the work that you're doing for the youth here in Colorado and the whole entire state. It's such important work and uh, just, uh, I, I, I want to be able to, to share it out and we have shared it out to, to a whole bunch of people today. And so, uh, thank you for the work that you do. It's really, really incredible. I uh, just want to do a quick shout out to KUHS Radio TV Denver. We are broadcasting here live from the beautiful city of Denver, Colorado, here on the council. I uh, just want to thank Henry and everybody there in the back who make all of the magic happen. They do all the work behind the scenes to make this such a seamless, effortless uh, show for you and we continue to work to try to figure out how we can be even better and more streamlined and more innovative for every show that we do and I thank each and every one of you who tune in every other week to the council to listen to our show uh, without you this show wouldn't be possible so thank you uh, all of you who listen in from all around the world now, before we close, Kimberly, I would like to ask, I always ask my guests these questions, before, this last question, uh, before we close. Um, Kimberly, if you could give one piece of advice, one bit of wisdom from your life experience, what would it be? This question is such a tricky one. I think it's the hardest one you ask the entire time. Um, and I think I'm going to land on live every moment in the present. Mm -hmm. um, time goes by so fast so be present for every second of it um because you know one day it'll 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 have flown by you wanted to have lived, lived it all yeah such a great so important you know and, I, and, it, and it's so wise coming uh, from you in the, in the sense that when you see and you live with people who are suffering uh you recognize how precious life is and how we want to get everybody back to health back to wellness back to wholeness to back to living in the present moment where your life is being lived, which is right now. This is where it is, and we want to help you uh, to get there. So thank you, Kimberly, for being on the show with us today. It has been an honor to have you on. Folks, thank you for tuning in to the council. The council is adjourned. We'll be back in two weeks. May you all be well. May you all be free of pain and suffering. May you all be whole. God bless. See you again. Coming here in two weeks. God bless.